Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At this point, most shows are winding down. Roy is just getting started. The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You know, I'll get a lot of uh, challenges on this, but I'm a huge uh, Burton Cummings fan, and I really think he's, I overall, can we get a little more of that? I think he's um, he's a, the best, the best uh, Canadian rocker, writer, um, singer. I, I interviewed Burton Cummings one time, and I asked him, what do you do when you're, when you're not, um, you know, in, in spare time, when you're not writing music or singing? He said, that's all I do. I devote my life to music. Anyway, great to have you back with us. Happy Canada Day, 150th birthday. I just have to read this to you again before we talk to our guests. It'll take 30 seconds. We had, some of you heard this earlier, others did not. We had a conversation just before the show started, and the question was, when did we change from Dominion Day to Canada Day, and how did it happen? Well, since you asked. From the Ottawa Citizen at 4 o'clock on Friday, July the 9th, 1982, the House of Commons was almost empty. The 13 parliamentarians taking up space in the 282-seat chamber were, by most accounts, half asleep as they began private members' hour. But then one of the more wakeful liberals noticed the Tory MPs were slow to arrive in the chamber. Someone, exactly who has never been firmly identified, Remembered Bill C-201, a private member's bill from Hal Hébert, the Liberal MP from Vaudreuil, Quebec, that had been gathering dust ever since it had received first reading in May of 1980, so two years earlier. An act to amend the Holidays Act proposed to change the name of the July 1 national holiday from Dominion Day to Canada Day. The whole process took five minutes. The MP celebrated by declaring an early end to sessions at 4.05 p.m., saying, quote, It's only appropriate that in celebrating our new holiday called Canada Day, we should at least take a holiday of 55 minutes this afternoon. <laughs> there, I love stories like that. Thirteen members in the House. They pull that thing off. All right. Uh, there's a new book that I think is, I think is fascinating. Whether or not you agree with the opinions in the book doesn't matter. Um, I think you're going to get a lot out of it. It's called Reflections of Canada, Illuminating Our Opportunities and Challenges at 150-plus Years. And uh, it is a work that uh, features some of the most critical thinkers in this country. And it's published by the Peter Wall Institute for Advanced Thinking at the University of British Columbia. We have uh, with us Margot Young, professor of law at UBC and co-editor of Reflections of Canada. Professor Young, good to talk to you. Happy to be on the air today. And happy Canada Day to you. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you. Maxwell Cameron, political science professor at UBC. His essay in the book 
deals with surprising defects in Canadian democracy and globalization's role in this. Professor Cameron, good to speak with you, and happy Canada Day. Uh, let me begin with with you, Professor Young. What was the the idea behind the book? How did it come about? Well, the the book came about through a series of conversations about where Canada is at this point in its history of Confederation. And these conversations were diverse. They pulled on a number of experts from across the University of British Columbia community, and they were located at this interdisciplinary institute, the Peter Wall Institute for Advanced Studies. At UBC, and from those conversations, we thought, wouldn't it be great to have a collection that brought together, you know, really engaged intellectuals talking to a general and a lay audience about the sorts of things with which we ought to engage at this moment in Canada's history. Remembering, and, and this is reflected in the title of the book, which is illuminating our opportunities and challenges at 150 plus years remembering that the land that Canada occupies has had peoples in it for much, much longer than 150 years, for, for thousands, tens of thousands. Let's begin, let's, let's begin with that. And we know that the, there, have been, uh, there have been Aboriginals, uh, First Nations people, Indigenous people on Parliament Hill during the Canada Day celebrations and saying exactly the same thing. Hold on, we were here a long time before, and uh, we expect our, 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 to be recognized, and there's... A, a lot of uh, discussion about First Nations governance. Where does that fit in the book, and where does that fit in the overall thinking that, that uh, I know the issues dealt with in the book. How, how's it dealt with? Well, it's one of the themes in the book, and it's a really important theme, as it should be a critical theme today and every day in Canada right now. So, um, the you know, 1867, when Canada became a dominion, uh, was not a time that had the full participation of our indigenous nations in the process, and it has not been a really positive 150 years for those people with assimilation, residential schools, and um, a colonial legacy that lives on. And so among other themes, such as uh, environmental, social justice, uh, immigrants to the nation since 1867, Many of our essays really tackle what it is we owe our Indigenous people, how we need to come to terms with the history that is an oppressive history of Indigenous people, and what do we need to do going forward to try and build both a more just country but a more just set of relations with our Indigenous people. Now, I find it, and I'm going to bring Max into this because Max's piece about democracy and uh, the notion of participation and, participation and vibrancy of democracy is a really important piece of this. Well, I want to talk to uh, Professor Cameron about that, but I also want to just mention that each year, each winter, particularly in the wintertime, we hear about Indigenous communities where they're living in absolutely substandard, uh, sub-third world realities at, uh, quite frequently with undrinkable water, with homes that are just absolutely incapable of providing you the most fundamental necessities of, of warmth and just being able to get through a Canadian winter. And, and all sorts of noises are made politically and, and socially as well. And then it all happens again the next year. And it happens again the next year. And this is, I think this may very well be, and I'll be challenged on this, I'm sure, but I think this is the most pressing issue this country faces internally. There was, is no doubt that it's a pressing issue and that the international community is watching Canada to see what we can do about this issue. It's a, a cause of great injustice and shame in a country as affluent as ours is. 
Yeah, we are affluent. Professor Cameron, um, I've, I'm reading the, the line from the, from the uh, news release. When I, when I uh, read that you have an essay about surprising defects in Canadian democracy and globalization's role in this, if I can remove that line, I'm fascinated by what happens in, uh, in politically, the globalization movement, also the populist movement. Give us a perspective on what is it that you're, what is it you're saying? Where, where is your focus in your essay? Well, I think my essay is, is, has the same tone as many of the other essays in this book in that, uh, on the one hand, we want to recognize the achievements and the accomplishments of Canada over its history, but it's not a self-congratulatory tone. And the, my, my essay essentially starts by saying, you know, we've got really pretty good institutions. For the most part, we're very fortunate if you look around the world in terms of how we're governed, um, in terms of the quality of our democratic institutions. And yet, notwithstanding that, there is a sense that they're underperforming, that people are not as engaged as they might be, that very few people uh, are members of political parties, uh, our levels of participation in elections uh, has gone down. There's sort of a growing sense of, of cynicism and that, that politics is somehow not directly connected to our lives in meaningful ways like it, like it could be. And, and so the essay really sets out then to... Uh, take stock of our democracy and to think about what are some of the kinds of participatory innovations or new ways of thinking about democratic deliberation that could infuse our democracy with more vibrancy and generate more excitement and enthusiasm. And I do think that one of the things that's striking in recent years uh, in our politics is the mobilization um, of, of Indigenous peoples. And we're hearing the voices of our First Nations in, a, in an increasingly uh, assertive way, which I think is actually very positive. Mm-hmm. Was there a time at all in the 150 years where we were doing it better politically than we're doing it now? You know, that's a, that's a great question. And, and I would say that probably no, in some ways, we're a more democratic society than ever before. Uh, we have higher levels of knowledge and understanding of, of politics. We've got an educated population. We've got a very dynamic and diverse population. But I, I would say that if you think there's certain features of, our, of the practice of democracy uh, at the federal and at the provincial level in particular, where we see a kind of uh, I would say growing uh, partisanship, growing polarization, a kind of a toxicity to the tone of our politics. Uh, for example, I thought you started off with a wonderful story about a private member's bill. You know, how, how often is it that nowadays we see ordinary members of parliament speaking directly on behalf of their constituents, unconstrained by party discipline? Hardly right? ever. Very, very rarely, right? And so I think that there's a lot that we could do to make our democratic institutions more meaningful nubs of public deliberation in ways that actually engage the public. Technology makes this easier. The nature of our society makes it easier. And yet we're kind of stuck with 19th century political institutions that in in certain crucial respects really haven't changed with the time. I interviewed Brian Mulroney just before he stepped uh, aside as prime minister. And we had a one-on-one 60-minute exclusive interview with him. And one of the points I made to the Prime Minister was, look, I hear from callers on a regular basis that they have lost contact with the 
with the political process because the member of parliament who represents a constituency does not speak for the constituents. The representative of the people in the constituency speaks for the political party, and the, and, the, and, the, and the MP does what you tell him to do as party leader and prime minister. And he looked at me, the prime minister looked at me, and he, he said, uh, frankly, I'm tired of the bitchers and complainers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's not it. I mean, you know, we, we run a, a summer institute for future legislators where we bring people who aspire to politics into contact with people who have had li- distinguished lives in politics. And one of the things that is fascinating is people who have served at the level of leadership, who have been in cabinet, have a very different view often from backbenchers and ordinary members of parliament who never uh, quite get to that, to that level. And I think what you're hearing from Mr. Mulroney was exactly the view of someone who uh, really was at the apex of the system. And from that perspective, you want your party to be a disciplined machine, but that's right. not necessarily what the citizens need in terms of getting now, the kind of local representation. Now, Professor Cameron, when you say the word apex, why did the next word that popped into my brain become predator? Anyway, let me <laughs> let me take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll speak more with Professor Margot Young, Professor Maxwell Cameron, about uh, the new book that is available. It's uh, Reflections of Canada, Illuminating Our Opportunities and Challenges at 150-plus uh, years. Um, so it's Canada Day 150. We'll come back in a minute. Roy may be a lot of things, but shy isn't one of them. He never backs down from a good debate. This is the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. She has been described as the most powerful woman in Canada. Catherine Swift joins us in the next half hour, along with Linda Leatherdale, former money editor of the Toronto Sun, and Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament, who is a seatmate of current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in our Canada Day Beauties and the Beast segment. Back to the Reflections of Canada. Um, the uh, book, it's the Peter Wall Institute for Advanced Studies in UBC that has uh, released the book. That's, that's, you get it through the university uh, Professor Young, or is it available at bookstores as well? Well, uh, I think most immediately and easily, it's on Amazon.ca. Isn't that right? I do anticipate it'll be in some bookstores, but that's the easiest uh, way to get it. And, you know, the one thing that I really would want to emphasize at this point is just the range and diversity of opinions that the collection represents. And so it's uh, 41 essays. It opens with a poem by Canada's Poet Laureate. And it really touches on not just the themes of indigeneity that we've discussed so far, but environmentalism, social justice, innovation, Canada's relationship with the U.S. and with the rest of the world. And it presents a sort of potpourri of the issues that, at this point in our history, we need to be engaging with, the kinds of things we, we quite rightly should celebrate and feel proud of, but the sorts of things on which we've yet to live up the potential that Canada has as this such a fortunate nation in the world. Is it uh, a bit of a a signpost to the future as well? Well, you know, I think it's a good, it's a a collection of the key issues that are on the political agenda Mm -hmm. and the social agenda for Canada. So in the sense of it being a signpost, as it indicates what we need to be thinking about and what we need to be thinking critically about and engaged in in dialogue about, then yeah, that that's true. Um, it's it's 
it's people from within the university and outside the university who are the leading thinkers and activists on these issues. And, um, uh, you know, it just it touches down on so many of the areas that really are the preoccupation of uh, thinking where Canada has to go in the next 150 years. Yeah, you know, I looked at some of the uh, essays, what the essays were about, and uh, it's a lot of what we talk about on uh, on talk radio. We get into it, at, at, you know, at a very uh, straightforward level where we we don't um, we don't uh, edit what people say. Uh, they come straightforwardly, and and quite often we we reach some interesting conclusions. And this is this this book really reflects in a way a lot of what we talk about, and it's it's great. If it, the the way we're going to do better at uh, getting along and understanding and moving forward with the issues that matter is if we understand them, talk about them, and 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 don't and we're not passive about it. Well, and it's a collection of opinions, yeah. and they're short essays. They're written in an accessible way. So the idea is you can sit down and in 10 minutes pick up and read an essay, and then, you know, half an hour later pick up and read another essay that's 100 pages later in the book on a different topic. And it's a really, I think, um, interesting collection of informed, expert, but accessible snapshots of the challenges and also the successes of Canada at this point in our history, yeah. the history of Canada, and, and, you know, still acknowledging that we're a land in which the, the three founding nations, the French, the English, and the indigenous people, still have ongoing issues with each other and, and for each other. Yeah, it's a huge nation with such a small population, and geographically that can pose some problems as well, because we tend to be more regional than national at times. Professor Cameron, what's your favorite essay in the book? Well, you know that's a that's a hard uh, question to answer. Um, I, I I actually they're struck by a number of them that deal with the environment, that deal with you know our our forests, um, our our water, our air, our fish. I learned so much about that. I realized that I don't you know there's there's so much about this country that I don't know. I've lived. You know, one third of the history of Confederation, and yet there's so much that I still don't know. Mm-hmm. But if I had to choose one essay, I, I guess I'd have to say uh, one that I find particularly lovely is uh, an essay by my colleague Kathy Harrison and her daughter Sophie. And Kathy started out as. And I have I, l- I have literally ten seconds, Professor Cameron. So Kathy uh, is uh, works on environmental policy, and her daughter is an environmental activist, and the two of them write a beautiful essay looking at the challenges of a carbon-constrained future. All right. Reflections of Canada, illuminating our opportunities and challenges at 150-plus years. It's at Amazon.ca and what isn't. Uh, Professor Young, thank you so much. Professor Cameron, thank you very much. Thank you. Our pleasure. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.